With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the inaugural episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. With me today are Stephen Shear. He is the Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Carleton College in my hometown of Northfield, Minnesota. Dr. Shear is the author, co-author, or editor of 22 books, a very prodigious guy. Also with me today is Todd Eberly. He is the Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at St. Mary's College of Maryland, about an hour outside of the Interstate 495 Beltway in Washington, D.C. Professor Eberly is an advisor to Project Vote Smart, and he is also consulted with the centralist organization Third Wave. Uh, today's book is going to be uh, How Trump Happened, a System Shock, a Decades in the Making. Welcome, gentlemen. Happy to be here, Dan. Thank you for having us. Oh, absolutely. So today's topic is none other than Donald Trump, arguably the world's most famous and polarizing figure. Uh, we've got plenty to discuss. There's no time to waste. So let's jump right in with my first question. Uh, I'm going to go back to the book you wrote before this, uh, which is about Trump, the outsider. And I'm curious, what might you make of this pattern uh, for him, the outsider? Both his first and third wives actually don't come from America. They are outsiders to America. Ivana, of course, being from Czechoslovakia and Melania from Slovenia. Uh, what might you make of that, just out of curiosity? Well, I think Trump has been a social outsider in New York City throughout his life, being from a, a Queens real estate family and trying to make it in Manhattan despite the raised eyebrows of longtime Manhattanites. So I think he's always had sort of an adversarial and do it my way, do it on my own uh, approach to life, uh, willing to uh, take on uh, the powers that be and the establishment if he sees it necessary and cultivate, you know, his own uh, persona in a very aggressive way. So uh, I think that may be reflected in his marriages as well. well. And I think it's fair to say that Americans have often looked to folks that they view as being outside Washington to, to come in at certain points where they're frustrated with national politics. And certainly uh, the election of Jimmy Carter in 76, even the election of George uh, W. Bush in 2000, they were looking for folks who came from the outside. And I think it's hard to imagine somebody more on the outside of the American political system than, than was Donald Trump in uh, 2015, 2016. And that's okay. why 
Yeah, and Dan, that's why we see this as a shock that was uh, decades in the making. I think people, as Todd said, were looking for somebody outside of what Trump calls the swamp, and uh, Trump fit the bill in 2016. Sure. And if we go back then, if we kind of take that lineage of being the outsider, in your book you mention a couple of figures I think worth touching on here, George Wallace and Ross Perot. Uh, obviously, they didn't get to the White House, but what do you see as emotionally and politically similar or dissimilar between Trump and those two? How did he get there and they didn't? Uh, Todd, do you want to take that? Absolutely. So I think if we start with uh, Perot first, we'll go in sort of reverse historical order. Perot saw uh, among the American people the real disgust with how Washington works. Uh, the lobbyists, which I believe he he used to refer to as gator shoes because of the fancy shoes that they would wear. Uh, and he argued that they didn't understand how, how normal people lived, which of course was, was humorous because Perot himself was a, was a billionaire. But he tapped into that. Uh, it's just that the, the anti-Washington, anti-establishment sentiment wasn't, um, wasn't deep enough. And you also had in Bill Clinton someone who also uh, presented sort of an outsider perspective that I think helped dilute uh, that vote back in 88, I'm sorry, back in 92 and again in 96. With George Wallace, though, there's something a bit different, and I think that is a better comparison to, to Trump. Wallace really, uh, once he moved beyond the more racial specific aspect of his politics, he focused more on elites in society, um, the well-educated, the professionals, the folks that he argued looked down on uh, the people who really did the work in America. And he pitted American politics as being a battle between uh, everyday people and, and those elites, and that was a message that that really had started to to catch hold, and we don't really know what would have happened with Wallace had he not ultimately uh, been shot during the Democratic primary process. What do you see as a, the emotional similarities or differences between the three? I mean, I, I understand the trajectory of their careers, but just as a person, what would you say are the characteristic emotions of these three, or maybe just the, between Wallace and uh, Trump, if we think that's the closest affinity? Anger. Yeah, anger. I was just going to say, Todd, the ang angry hostility towards uh, uh, rival elites, if you will. Uh, I think you very much see that in uh, George Wallace. I remember Wallace in 1968 used to, in his speeches, talk about all those bureaucrats strolling around Washington with nothing in their briefcases but a peanut butter sandwich. Uh, having total scorn for them. And you find similar approaches uh, to rivals in uh, the gator shoes comment of Perot and the many, many uh, hostile tweets of Trump that continue to this morning. <laughs> and, and Wallace's rallies were actually very similar to, to Trump rallies. They were full on uh, theatrical productions. Uh, protesters were highlighted because Wallace loved to point out the protesters to show how they really represented the other side that, that we were fighting against. So the, the degree of similarity, the thread that connects those two, I, I think is very clear the more you look into it. Sure. And as you may know, for listeners, I am a facial coding expert. That means I look at people's facial muscle activities to see what emotions their expressions reveal. Uh, of those two, I would certainly agree that Wallace is the closer fit. To me, his two seminal emotions are anger and disgust. 
So the anger in terms of hitting out, of liking to be antagonistic, uh, the scorn that you just mentioned, Stephen, in terms of the disgust, uh, that's really the affinity. Ross Perot uh, kind of enjoyed making his one-liners. He actually showed a fair amount of satisfaction, which to me is kind of a mid-level happiness. And the other one is in the public, he actually showed fear. Uh, he was not someone who was quite as comfortable in his own skin, quite as much of uh, perhaps the grandstand or liking the the rallies and so forth. Let me move on to another person, someone you mentioned in your book on a few occasions, and that's Richard Nixon. Uh, and I want to bring up Nixon because at two different points in the book, chapters five and seven, uh, you bring in some other ways of looking at presidents and where might the affinities be. So one has to do with what you call the dominators. And the dominators, uh, and I'm quoting from your book, were Jackson, Andrew Jackson, that is, Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon. And then later on, you're talking about preemptive presidents, those who are out to uh, savage or you know go after the political orthodoxy. And there, the list of preemptive presidents from the source you're citing is Nixon, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, that is, and Bill Clinton. Now, the fascinating thing to me is from those two lists, there's one person in common. It's Richard Nixon. I, I'd be curious to have you talk about that. Well, yeah, let's talk about that classification system because it's a very interesting one. Uh, the book is by two uh, social psychologists, Stephen Rubenzer and Thomas Fashingbauer. It's called Personality, Character, and Leadership in the White House. And they have done... Uh, they essentially surveyed historians of every president and gave them personality questionnaires about the presidents they've spent their lives studying and came up with these patterns uh, regarding the main five personality traits that individuals have. And uh, they, they, the dominators are a very distinct group, and they always had trouble in the White House. Uh, uh, Johnson uh, had to leave, could not run in 1968, and was very unpopular. Nixon resigned, facing impeachment. Andrew Jackson was censured by the U.S. Senate, the only president to be censured. And, of course, Trump has now been impeached. These are presidents who, uh, for whom uh, the daily fare is conflict. Uh, they pursue it. Uh, they're aggressive in pursuing domination. Uh, in fact, just to quote the authors, they're bossy, demanding, domineering, manipulative, and not even tempered, egotistical, stubborn, and hard-headed. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and Trump, I think, fits this type very clearly, and all you have to do is, is watch him for maybe a few hours, and you get a sense of this, uh, that he does pursue conflict, does seek domination, and this produces big blowback throughout the political system and produces a very rocky presidency, as we're seeing with Trump and we've seen with these other presidents. Okay, and how about on this preemptive side? That was the other critique that was done here. Um, th those affinities, that's Nixon, Woodrow Wilson, and Bill Clinton. How does Trump fit into into that mix. Well, that's a typology from Stephen Skoranek, a political scientist at Yale University. And these are, as he puts it, mongrel presidents who don't comfortably fit in their own party's coalition, but try and uh, create a pathway between the two established party coalitions. And that is a very perilous course because you don't have that secure a political base. Uh, and Trump has 
deviated from Republican orthodoxy at times, and it's gotten him in trouble. Uh, uh, he's not been able to pursue uh, agenda items with the Democrats in Congress due to Republican opposition. Uh, and um, uh, preemptive presidents are often politically vulnerable, subject to attacks from all over the political spectrum. And Trump has some of these traits in that there's a group of Republican political consultants who are running ads against him already <laughs> in a variety of states. So there are some preemptive traits to uh, Trump as well. Okay. So if I take those two together, what I'm hearing is volatile and insecure. Was there something you wanted to say on that front, Todd? Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, a lot of folks would look at Trump and think maybe preemption doesn't apply because the Republican Party seems to have fallen in line quickly. But if you look beneath the surface on some some very touchy Republican issues, especially gun control, anytime Trump has even hinted that he was going to stray from the party line on that, he has very quickly been pushed right back into place. So I think sometimes there is a tendency to overstate how much Trump has changed the Republican Party and how independent from it he actually is. Okay. And if we go to the question I asked about Wallace and Perot, emotionally, politically, where's the affinity, where's the disconnect if there is one between Trump and Nixon, or are they basically an overlay as far as you're concerned? Well, uh, Nixon, you know, did... Uh <laughs> did violate uh, Republican orthodoxy in a wide variety of ways. Uh, he basically endorsed the welfare streak state created by the Great Society programs of Linda Johnson. And I think you can see uh, the Reagan and later Republican Party as a policy repudiation of that preemptive approach that uh, Nixon took. Uh, it, it really did cost him. Uh, Dominators tend to be uh, pretty solitary individuals in the White House because of their uh, temperaments and uh, often don't leave a big legacy behind them that is a positive one. And I think those are things that uh, Trump has to uh, be concerned about as he proceeds through his presidency. Okay. Well, I'm bringing up Nixon uh, because I think he's central to to Trump and who he is as a person emotionally. Uh, I also couldn't resist because, truthfully, just the other day, uh, you know, on Fox and Friends, Trump invoked Nixon. Yeah. Uh, he did rather quickly then move away and cite ways in which he was different. But he opened his comments by saying, I learned a lot from Richard Nixon. Uh, you probably know, but some listeners may not know. Uh, they two gentlemen met for the first time in 1989. Uh, there was a fundraiser kind of event held in Houston for the wife of John Connolly, uh, the Texas politician who had been uh, first a Democrat and then a Republican. And uh, Trump ended up giving uh, a plane ride back to New York for tr for uh, Nixon, uh, struck up a conversation for three hours on board. Uh, we don't know exactly what was asked, uh, but, uh, you know, that seems to have been something where uh, it was really an affinity. I I'm saying that in part because if I think about the 1968 uh, convention, that was really the model in many ways, apparently, for Trump's own remarks at that convention in 2016. Uh, there's other similarities as well. I'd say the one that really strikes me is sadness. Uh, having studied the emotions, the characteristic emotions of both of these gentlemen, sadness is their preeminent emotion. I'm curious uh, if you thought about that or you kind of sensed, uh, I mean, you were mentioning, Stephen, a sense of kind of isolation, uh, maybe loneliness on the part of uh, Trump. 
Uh, anything more you can you can uh, tease out regarding these possible similarities? Well, I think Trump's relationship with his father uh, was a, a a very complicated one in that it involved admiration, but also a certain distance from his father. Uh, and as a result, uh, I think that there were there was a lack of emotional fulfillment in his childhood that led him to act out in a variety of ways. I mean, his sister, a now retired federal judge, said that his nickname as a child in the family was the great I am. Well, I, <laughs> some things never change. <laughs> yeah, it, there is this underlying uh, uh, subtext in, in Trump's uh, tweets of, you know, why why don't they, they love me? Why don't they like me? And you see that coming across when he tries to explain, oh, the reason I'm not more popular is because of this liar, because this isn't being told the truth about me. It's very clear that it matters a great deal to him that he have public approval. And if you contrast that with someone like, say, just George uh, W. Bush, Bush seemed to be completely free from worrying about whether or not his approval rating was up or, or down. If he thought what he was doing was right, he, he stayed the course in, and he did it because he, I think he, he had a, a confidence, uh, whether it was right or wrong, he had a confidence that told him to stay the course. Trump seems to lack that that sense of confidence, he needs the the feedback. And I think that's why he's so eager to get back to his rallies, because he can be surrounded by people who adore him. And he really needs to have that feeling. I think that's right. And I also think that Trump's micro obsession with the media, with daily coverage, with uh, picking at the media, picking at media personalities, reflects this incessant drive to receive the approval of others that he does not get from the media. He has said that he thought once he became president that the media coverage would become much more positive than it has. And we've seen uh, studies that show that 92 percent of the coverage of the Trump presidency by mainstream media has been negative. And I think that really uh, affects Trump and his desire for approval causes him, I think, often counterproductively to engage in jousts with the media because he believes that they're treating him unfairly and he demands approval. Okay. Yeah, no, that all makes sense to me. I, I just get this endless sense of grievance. That's where that sadness comes into play, uh, looking for an affirmation uh, from the mainstream, even though they despise the mainstream, that just doesn't seem to materialize. So anyway, I've kind of set the stage now for, I think, a little on Trump, the outsider, Trump, the, the man. Uh, let's bring the public into this picture. In your first chapter, you say you've actually titled it Our Angry Politics. So I think we have to get back to this really fundamental question. Why are the voters so angry and how has Trump leveraged, played with, worked with that emotion? It's a great question. And quite frankly, I don't know if we're quite certain on the answer of why we're, we're so angry, but but we are. Uh, some of this is fed by um, a feeling that government no longer represents us that it has become too detached, too distant, uh, almost too thick, if you will. Uh, the bureaucracy, the, the size, the weight, the gravity of it almost prevents it from being uh, responsive. We don't necessarily understand how decisions are made or who has influence. And as the world has become less and less sort of predictable and, and, and less manageable, we've looked for uh, folks to blame, ways to let that out. 
and we have blamed that that distant, remote, ever thickening government. And every now and then we sort of rail up at the the ballot box and say, well, we're going to throw everybody out and, and bring the other side in. And then we're we're sort of surprised and even more angry when we realize that but putting the other side in didn't really change anything. Because again, it it sort of resists that change. And and where might we go with anger now that we have record unemployment uh, <laughs> since the Great Depression? Uh, I mean, we're we're suddenly finding ourselves in an environment where uh, if people were angry before, my my God, we've now entered you know the land of perhaps outright outrage. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, we've seen people show up in, in protests. We've got armed folks showing up on the the Capitol in, in Michigan to express their their anger. Uh, because, you know, in a democracy, if we're going to the voting booth and the the results of an election aren't necessarily bringing the change that we had expected them to bring, what then do we do? And I think that that's a, a valid fear. You know, in 2016, I think one of the most fascinating results looking at exit polls, uh, a substantial number of voters disliked uh, Hillary Clinton and disliked Donald Trump. They didn't trust him. But they broke overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. And, and I think that's simply because he was the person on the outside. Hillary Clinton was part of the establishment. And if you look at polls right now, a surprising number of people don't like Donald Trump and don't like Joe Biden. Joe Biden is winning those folks comfortably because now he's the one who, who's on the outside. So we see ourselves just sort of going back and forth between two opposing teams, neither of which delivering what we want them to deliver. And, and I think it's a real valid concern of where this anger goes if it's not finding resolution at the ballot box. Sure. Well, I was interested when I read your first chapter because, uh, yeah, clearly Hillary Clinton was the you know insider. She was, in fact, going to be another term in office for Obama, or at least some people could see it that way, uh, to the degree to which she is smug and satisfied or came across like that. Uh, that wouldn't you know match up very well with a dissatisfied electorate. Uh, I was also struck in that chapter by, even though it's about anger, it was also a lot about disgust, mm -hmm. uh, which is an emotion where you are rejecting things that they stink, they smell bad, they taste bad. Uh, it certainly fits in with, you know, drain the swamp. How well do you think Trump, is he, you know, a great surfboarder and he's just kind of riding the crest of this anger? Is he adept enough to cut across it in ways that he is really skilled at manipulating it? I mean, how well do you think Trump's, in effect, his emotional IQ is, or his, in, yeah, his emotional IQ, his EQ? How, how good is he at this game? Well, let me uh, talk about this in reference to his long career as a public celebrity, because, you know, obviously what happens in the popular culture will show up in our political operations eventually. And Trump has spent decades in the popular culture, cultivating a persona and cultivating popularity. So let me just briefly tick off a few traits of his career as a celebrity, right? Uh, constant search for the spotlight. Of course, that's not hard to do now when you're in the White House. Uh, Trump alone has always directed his own publicity efforts, and I think he still is resist management in the White House. Uh, often outlandish antics and verbal eruptions. Look at uh, the Twitter eruptions of this week. And frequent resort to exaggerations and falsehoods. Uh, you know, even this week he suggested that uh, the NBC television personality Joe Scarborough may have been involved in a murder. <laughs> There's an example <laughs> of an outrageous exaggeration. Um, 
he's been doing this and perfecting these methods for decades, and he has brought them into the political sphere. Now, what we see is that this was very effective in making him uh, probably the most famous business person in America uh, uh, by before he ran for president. And uh, he has brought these into the presidency and continues to use them. Has it been successful? I would say yes in the following way. He's been able to keep 45% of the public with him through thick and thin, which is very unusual. Usually there's much more variation in presidential job approval. On the other hand, these tactics obviously alienate a lot of Americans. And so there's a real there's a real definite ceiling to his support, but there's also a real definite floor to his support. And I think the way he operates helps to maintain that. Uh, so I think you see tactics working in the popular culture, coming into the political system, and working for Trump in a variety of ways. How about TV? I mean, you know, we could almost do this as an alliterative game. We've got Trump, we got Twitter, and we've got television. This is a man who, apparently, according to his schedule, executive time is a euphemism for watching TV, and he does a lot of it during the day. Uh, from what I've read, he spent a lot of time watching TV as a kid. Um, Either of you, Todd, Stephen, what might you make of, you know, certainly the tweets get a lot of attention, but TV's really in the mix. It's obviously in the mix and being on The Apprentice shows. Anything more you want to say on the role of TV and maybe that TV watching and how it ties into his ability to connect with the least, you know, a pretty fair portion of the American public? Well, I mean, TV absolutely helped. Think about it from this perspective. You know, Donald Trump decides to run uh, for the Republican nomination for president, and he's running against a list that included some very well-established uh, Republicans, each of whom had a credible claim to some some segment of the Republican electorate. Now, Donald Trump had been member a member of multiple political parties uh, just within the past decade. He didn't necessarily have an in with any constituency in the Republican Party, but he didn't have to build it from the ground up like you know, say uh, a, a true uh, newbie candidate did because people knew him. They knew him from years and years on television and the press knew him. And because of that, the press covered him constantly. So the press in that respect actually helped create the connection to the electorate that everybody else running had to create either through years of, of holding office, running for office or being involved in national politics. Trump didn't have to go through that. And that helped him tremendously. But I do think there's also a tendency for him to overestimate how good he is at using either television or Twitter to, to sway public opinion. And I think we saw that play out in the past couple of weeks with his, his daily briefings on the coronavirus response. He thought that that might be an alternative to his rallies so that he could get out there, he could speak, he could talk about how, things, how great things are going, and that would bring the, the public opinion in line. And it didn't have that effect at all. In fact, it, it worked quite horribly for him as far as a public relations uh, tactic. And at least inside reports say that when his people tried to tell him that it was not working, he just couldn't believe it. He was convinced that you know when he went on television, when he spoke, that that worked for him. So I think he tends to overestimate how well he can manipulate uh, that media. Well, and uh, David Axelrod, who was the strategist behind Obama's 2008 victory, uh, opined about Trump that the Democrats should actually fund those daily press conferences <laughs> and be sure that they're on all networks because they work so well for uh, the Democrats instead of for Trump. 
Okay, so in other words, adept enough to use these mediums, but not adept enough to seemingly change the game and the outline of American politics. Is that a fair summary, or would you take it someplace different? Well, I think part of it is that um, Trump is no longer the outsider, no matter how much he wants to present that he is. He's the head of the federal government in the midst of an international pandemic that that's affecting this country in tremendous ways. And he seems to want to get credit for anything that's going okay, but at the same time suggest that it's the fault of the Obama administration or the fault of China or the fault of governors for anything that goes wrong. And that doesn't work when you are, in fact, the central figure in American politics. So his persona as outsider and his tendency to sort of use that persona can't work in a situation like that. And I think he's failed to recognize that. I okay. think, yeah, I think uh, Trump thought that we would enjoy living for four years in Trump Tower, and he's surprised to find that a lot of reporters and a lot of the public really want a new place of residence. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess one thing that's interesting to me when I look at his lineage and I think about the affinity to Wallace and Nixon there were a few years more searing in American history outside of the Civil War than 1968, mm-hmm. which is the, the key year for both of those gentlemen. Right. And uh, now we are going to have, you know, uh, 1929 and the stock crash all over again, uh, combined with a virus. And it's just an incredibly, you know, strong one-two punch. So he's about to live through one more of these searing years. Uh, let's go ahead and shift focus just a little bit. I'm curious for both of you, in the process of writing this book, what for you was the most surprising thing you learned? Well, I can start with that because I I spent a lot of time diving into Trump's career before he entered politics, and it was a, a quite a bath, I can tell you, to go through all of that. Uh, and uh, the really th- the thing that really struck me were these traits from his celebrity career that he brought directly to the White House and that also worked for him in the presidential campaign. It showed to me that as our popular culture shifts and new approaches are happening by uh, celebrities, that there is a real effect on our politics and on popular support for political leaders. Uh, That to me is, uh, is quite evident now, but it's also more than a little disturbing. Okay. And Todd, anything you, big surprise for you? Yeah, I, I think for me, we, we all could look at our politics and see how much anger uh, and even hate seems to play a role in it now. But to see the extent to which uh, Democrats and Republicans see each other uh, through uh, a filtered lens, I, I think um, is most surprising to me. Uh, roughly 85 to 90% of, of Republicans describe Democrats as being uh, brainwashed, hateful, and racist. And not surprisingly, nearly 90% of Democrats describe Republicans in the exact same way. And yet, when you look at um, surveys of people on policy issues, where you you take away the, it's either a yes or no, for instance, you either support abortion or you oppose it, and you introduce the actual nuance of, of policy. Well, what do you think in the first trimester, the second trimester, the third? Uh, what you find is that most Americans actually agree with each other overwhelmingly on matters of policy. But the minute you put a policy label, a party label on something, we go into our separate camps and we refuse to even consider what the other side is thinking. And that is limiting us tremendously 
because we're now moted via politics simply of opposition and repudiation of the other side and not a politics driven really by a belief in our own side. And that's, that is something new that, that you don't even have confidence in your own team. It's just, you hate the other team so much that you stick to your team just because you don't want to be part of those other people. Right. Okay. And, yeah. And that has been Trump's approach. I mean, yep. he is working with this configuration of attitudes, uh, venting anger in a way to, I think, maintain a lot of the divisions that Todd has just described. Uh, yeah, I mean, we know there are quite a few Republicans still uh, who do not like Trump. There was a survey out just this week that found roughly a quarter of Republicans think the party should nominate somebody other than Trump. Well, I, I guarantee you, most of those will wind up voting for him on election day simply because he's not a Democrat. And Trump has been very, very good at telling Republicans, you may not like me, but these other guys want to destroy America. Okay. So if we take this whole, and I agree with what you're saying, but if we take this whole thing of, you know, I don't believe in the other people, we're polarized, I don't even believe in my own team. If we take this out of the realm of Trump and even national politics and try to plug this into people who lead, you know, companies, nonprofit organizations, uh, you know, any situation, it could be, a, you know, your softball team. Everything's got leaders. I mean, what what are the lessons for us in Trump, the leader, you know, in terms of how it's playing out and what can be the takeaway for for listeners, ways in which there's some pearls of wisdom here. We can only pray for for how we can get to a, a better outcome as a society and in an organization of any stripe. Well, I think there's a very clear negative lesson here. There is a real self limiting quality to uh, adversarial leadership of the sort that uh, Trump uh, traffics in. Uh, when you uh, essentially work with conflict and anger as your primary orientation as a leader, uh, you put real limits on what you can accomplish. And I think that's been one of the uh, real legacies of his presidency. And, and I'd say, you know, I think we've got to understand that people still take a lot from elite cues, the things that they see from either party leaders or even industry leaders or, or media leaders. Uh, you think back to just uh, several months ago, I guess it was, when um, Ellen DeGeneres was seen watching a football game with uh, George W. Bush, and that suddenly became a controversy. You know, how, how could she sit with um, uh, President Bush? And she defended it as, you know, look, I, I have friends with people regardless of whether or not I agree with them. We tend to live in a world now where if a, a company, an organization allies itself in any way with the opposite party, there's a backlash. And I think that probably folks in the media, uh, folks in corporate America, if you aren't willing to say we need to build bridges and, and that's what we're going to do, the folks in the audience are going to take that to heart as well, and they're going to refuse to build bridges. So focus more on how you can bridge the divide and less on how you can cater to the divide because it might help you in the short term. Um, so just kind of wrapping up Trump's career, I mean, even after he's off the stage or whatever point that proves to be, I mean, there are some things that he has said uh, that are associated with him that are going to live uh, in the American you know, political and social landscape for a long time. Uh, you're fired. Drain the swamp. <laughs> fake news. Uh, what, what are we? Maybe I'm missing one or two. Um, I'm just curious what you think about these little you know, sound bites that he has implanted into the American psyche. Well, first of all, I think that they resonate because they reflect what a lot of his supporters have long thought about 
the political system. You know, uh, this disaffection with American politics has been building since the middle 1960s. So for us, it was not that huge a surprise to see that outsiders would eventually take over the White House in a variety of ways. And Trump's the latest example of that. Um, and uh, what I think we see with these sort, this sort of language is that the divisions are so much a fixed part of our political landscape that now a president has no compunctions about reinforcing them with a hot rhetorical poker on a daily basis. And we may see more of that in our politics. Uh, certainly it's true. In your book, you cite uh, where the trust index has gone for voters in this country. It's just a phenomenal nosedive. Uh, 60% in 1966, post-Watergate, uh, it was you know dropping like a stone, half of that. Uh, by the time we get to the Trump presidency, 17%. I mean, I know from my studies that you know, distrust, which we're really saying is contempt. I don't respect. I don't trust the other side. I see them beneath me is the single most reliable indicator in a marriage, for instance, that the marriage will fail. Uh, you've essentially dismissed the other side. Uh, it could be, you know, in a marriage, it could be politically with the other party. Uh, but it's just really a, a stunning statistic. So, Anyway, we are pretty much run out of time. I want to thank you both for being my guests here today on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number one, The Unsurprising Rise of Donald Trump. To check out other episodes or my books, lectures, or other activities, including my appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com. That's sensory logic, S-E-N-S-O-R-Y, as in your five senses. Or if you've got a follow-up question for my guest today, feel free to email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. Finally, as I'll be doing at the end of every episode, here's today's closing epigram. It comes from perhaps our single most eloquent previous president. Yes, I could be talking about Thomas Jefferson, but here I mean Abraham Lincoln. As honest and wise old Abe observed, if you want to know the character of a man's soul, give him power. Until next time, remember, be kind and stay safe. The life you save might be your own. Mm -hmm.